0: I'm trying out the brand new mic tonight, so I didn't break it. So, so far, so good. If I have not met you guys, my name is Stosh. It stands for Anastasia, but no one but my mom calls me that. Anastasia Menicucci, and I am one of the GCU campus pastors. I get to co with my husband, Chris. We've been married since April, so it's almost been six months, and it's been awesome. Anyone who knows Chris knows how awesome he is. He's kind, he's faithful, and he's an incredible leader. And I am super blessed to get to co-lead with him. It's funny, we actually were co-leaders before we got married. And so you never know. Say yes to Jesus, co-lead something, you never know where it's going to go. But I grew up in Colorado. Anybody from Colorado here? Cool, my brother and one other person. That's awesome. Woo. Well, <laughs> I love Colorado, love the trees, never wanted to come to Phoenix and the desert. I do not do well with hot weather, but God had a plan and a mission for me coming here, and that has just been made more and more clear as I've had more opportunities to say yes to Jesus. Am I making, like, rebounding noises? Okay, it's not me. Okay, cool. Tell me if I need to fix something. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Yeah, but I moved down here to go to GCU. I was a lope, went there for two years, um, and honestly. Came to GCU not really knowing what to expect, except that I felt like God had brought me here. Got my degree in Christian Studies. Didn't start out that way. Like everybody else, I changed my major like three times because that's just normal. That's the way it is. Um, But yeah, I ended up getting a degree in Christian Studies. That's where I ended up meeting Chris, which is really funny. Um, And God just began to really deeply transform my life in college So I actually started going to Antioch about five years ago, so it was my freshman year of college. I came to an Awaken a couple times, didn't get super plugged in until my second year at GCU. So I only went to GCU for two years, so freshman, senior year, but anyways. um, And really started to get connected, got plugged in here, began to really encounter Jesus here. And honestly, that is the reason why I'm still here five years later. Um, I have been searching and searching for a place where people were hungry for Jesus and where I could come and I could just encounter him on a random Thursday night or a random Sunday or a random night of the week. And for those of you who aren't familiar with our tribe of people, I just want you to know that we're not a perfect people. This isn't a perfect place we are a sincere people, and we're sincere people that are hungry for encounters with Jesus. And I hope that you felt that. Even during this time of worship, I was just reminded again of, like, this is who we are. We're people who are just hungry for the presence of Jesus, and he shows up, guys. He always shows up. And so tonight, as I was sitting there thinking about getting up on stage, just was reminded afresh of the reason we do any of this, the reason why I'm up here tonight, the reason why... We have a church building, our college ministry, is because we want to encounter Jesus, and we want to do it in the context of community. And so, just so glad that you guys are here. Welcome if you're new, if you're returning, you're awesome, we love you, and we're glad that you're here. But anyways, for those of you who were here last week, my husband Chris preached on Psalm 23, and we went through the entire Psalm and basically broke it down, sentence by sentence, verse by verse. And Chris talked about how Psalm 23 is not just an allegory that God is our shepherd or our king, but Psalm 23 is actually the reality that we get to live in as believers. And so we have a God who is a shepherd, and we get to come under his leadership. We get to let him guide us to green pastures and besides still streams of water. But we also have a God who is a king, who is fierce, who is a ruler, and whose kingdom is advancing on the earth. We can live out the promise of Psalm 23, and we're actually supposed to, is what we talked about last week. And so this week, I get the privilege of talking about another foundational aspect of God's character. Tonight, we're going to be talking about God's grace. And I've been working on this sermon for a couple weeks. We're in the midst of Fall Push, so I knew that I was going to be busy this week. I'm also on staff in our discipleship school. So I was like, I need to get ahead on writing the sermon so that I don't get to the week of and spend the day of writing the sermon. Unfortunately, that's still what ended up happening today. I rewrote my entire intro and wrote a lot of the sermon today. But it was kind of funny, multiple times this last week, I like went to work on it and I just wasn't getting anywhere with grace. And I was like, grace should be kind of easy to talk about. Like we talk about grace all the time in the church. It's pretty foundational to who we are and what we believe in. But I kept coming back to this place of like, how do we talk about grace in a way that is actually relevant to the culture that we live in? And how do we talk about grace in a way that is new and isn't just the way that we've all heard a hundred times before? And what's funny is that I, in order to get inspiration, I was like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm not gonna sit here and strive. I'm gonna like go into my bedroom and turn on some worship songs about grace and get super inspired, and then come back out here and write my sermon. And I literally fell asleep. <laughs> and <laughs> that didn't happen one time or two times, that's happened three times now in the process of writing this sermon. And I kept coming back to this place of Jesus, like I have to write this thing. And like, I don't understand, I don't know how to talk about grace. I should know, I, like I have a theology degree, like I have some credentials to know what I'm talking about. Um, But I felt like the Lord brought me back and was like, exactly. Like, you're trying to strive. Like, it's based off of the fact that you should know what you're talking about. And that's the way that you're approaching this. And I'm making you fall asleep to remind you that actually the only way we get anything done is by being with Jesus and not by doing things for him. And so... I love the passage in scripture where Elijah's like freaking out and God's like, go take a nap and eat a snack and then let's talk. So that's one of my principles for life of like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to go sleep. I'm going to go eat a snack and we're going to try again or get some coffee. That's also definitely how I live my life. And so I say all that to to tell you guys that I'm going to try and take a different approach to grace tonight. And there's going to be some things that we talk about that might be a little bit offensive to your heart. And I want to say that that's okay because I feel like what the Lord is wanting to do tonight is to uproot some things in our hearts and to maybe reveal some things in our mindsets that we think are normal but actually are not the way that God ever intended for us to live. And so I want you guys to know that going in, that if I say something that rubs you a little bit, actually just pay attention to it because I feel like God may bring that up at the end of the service to have you respond to it. Sound good? Sound good? Cool. Cool. I'll get sip water real quick. So, grace, like many words in our Christianese, has begun to lose its significance. Grace, love, peace—we hear these words, we're kind of like, yeah, whatever. I've heard them a million times before. But I think partially why this is, is because the way our culture has begun to tackle these words and create new meaning to them. And specifically with grace, I feel like our culture has begun to associate grace with performance and to distort its real meaning. So psychologists believe that the structure of our brains is developed and shaped by the environments that we live in, that we work in, that we play in. These environments, in turn, are shaped by the culture of the world around us. So, the emerging field of cultural neuroscience has begun to study this interplay between culture and our belief systems. So there's a connection between the environments that we put ourselves in and actually the things that we believe about ourselves, about other people, and about God. What they've discovered is there's actually a huge connection here. In fact, our culture and environment are the largest factor in influencing these beliefs. So our core beliefs, what we believe is true, what we believe is not true, is mostly shaped by culture and our environment. Can you guys see where that might be a problem? Yeah. Why am I telling you this? Because while some of us might agree that culture does influence what we believe, I don't think we realize to what extent it influences what we believe. So culture tells us what types of genes are cool, what type of plant-based milk is now the best in your latte. But the other thing that culture tells you is what your standard of morality should be and what you should believe is true and what you believe is false. And actually, it has influence over the actual neurons in your brain. That's a big deal. That means that on a scientific level, the environment and culture of the day is shaping what we believe and how we respond. Because every belief is where our behavior stems from. And I don't know if you guys have noticed or not, but Christianity is sort of not the popular religion of the day. Just like in Europe, Europe has moved into a post-Christian culture in society, America has begun to follow the same trends. Post-Christian meaning that Christianity used to be the largest accepted religion and moral belief of the day, but that culture now has started to say, yeah, we don't really want that anymore, but we want pieces of it. So we're going to keep the pieces about like love and unity and peace and tolerance, but we're going to kind of scrap everything else. We'll keep the pieces we like, but we're going to ditch the rest. And so what this means is that in a culture that used to be built on foundational Christian beliefs, America was founded as a Christian nation. It's a little bit messier than that, but at the core, the core beliefs of America were things that Jesus taught, scriptures. We've begun to actually turn away from this. And so as believers in the church, we need to know this, because we need to know how the culture of our day is shifting our mindsets and changing what we believe. This means that now more than ever, we need to pay attention to our thoughts and our beliefs and how they make us respond. And tonight, I specifically want to talk about how our culture has weaved a moral performance narrative that has actually distorted our understanding of grace. And as we talk tonight, guys, I just want you to know I'm speaking as much to myself as I am to you. I feel like I definitely, most of my life have been perfectionistic, I've been a people pleaser. I try to do as much as I can and control as much as I can. And so God has been showing me a lot about myself as I've been writing this message. And my hope and my prayer tonight is that God does for you too that he begins to open up your worldview and the things you think about yourself and begins to say, hey, that actually isn't what I think about you. That actually isn't the way that you have to live and that God begins to reveal those things to us. And so we're going to start out with this moral performance narrative, which is a long word that basically is just a type of belief that we have at large in our culture. And it says that our doing far outweighs our being and our worth is based on what we do. Success is of primary importance because our performance dictates whether or not we have value. Because I manage my performance, I can actually control how valuable I am to myself and to other people. If I just do enough, if I'm good enough, if I'm funny enough, smart enough, I will be loved and accepted. And love and acceptance is something that has to be earned. I need to be perfect. I need to self-justify myself. I need to be my own authority. And grace, therefore, is something I have to earn. I don't know if y'all can relate to any of that. It's a long list. But I know I certainly can. And not in a happy kind of relate, in a like, ooh, that hurts kind of way. I think we're often very tempted to buy into the lie that the moral performance narrative can weave because it puts control back in our hands but it also means that the things that we deeply desire, we actually can never attain. Because we actually can never do enough, be good enough, be perfect enough, be successful enough to ever fill that hole within ourselves. Yet this is the narrative of our culture. This is the narrative of our day and age. It's what most people believe without even trying to believe it. It's just innate, it's in there. And within this moral performance narrative, I think there's two more specific ways that this flushes out. And the reason why I'm going to break this down is I think it can be helpful to identify really specifically where your thought patterns go and where your tendencies and behavior can be. So think about it, if you're into the Enneagram, the moral performance narrative would be your number, and then these two would be like your wings. So you'd either wing this way or wing that way. The first way that we can wing is into a religious performance narrative. And the greatest example that I can think of in this is the Pharisees. Religion is not a new thing. A religious mindset is not new at all. Jesus dealt with it, and it's still at large today. But the Pharisees were specifically known for their religious practices and their controlled lifestyles. Note, they were not known for their grace. They were not known for their love or their inclusivity of other people. But they were known for their very high moral code and their ability to follow it to its heat. Like, they did not lie, they did not steal, they went to church every single day, memorized entire books of the Bible. They lived to an extreme that most of us can't even imagine living in. But we see this in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So, I think Luke 18 will pop up on the screen, but I'm going to read through it. It says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. That's the religious mindset right there. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is a very clear distinction between what it looks like to operate in a religious performance mindset and what it looks like to understand humility. The Pharisaical mindset says that we measure our goodness and our closeness with God based on our religious performance. So for us today, that could be how many church services did I attend in a week? How many times did I pray? Did I make sure that I spent time with God every single day? Did I make sure that I sinned a little bit less than everyone else? And what it can start to do is we create this checklist of religious activity and it's like, okay, I prayed today, I worshiped, I prayed for someone else, I was a nice person. And rather than our, our behavior coming from a place of loving God, we turn it into a checklist of religious duty that we just have to do in order to measure up. We begin to start to have a superior mindset, as we see in this parable, that when we are stuck in a religious mindset, we're stuck on ourselves, basically, and we're only focused on ourselves and how good we are, and we completely disregard and write off everyone else because we believe we control how valuable we are and how much knowledge we have, how good we are at our spiritual disciplines. And we tend to fall into very black and white thinking. That actually is not very helpful, but we think that there's a right way to do things, and it's the only way to do things. And can live very rigid and controlling lives. And while spiritual disciplines are so good, like, amen, get time with Jesus every day, pray every day, be intentional to evangelize, like, do the things. Yes, that's the type of people we want to be. There is a place of examining our heart posture and why we do the things that we do. Because for some reason, hopefully some of you can relate to this, we think that perfection moves God's heart. And guys, I'm just here to tell you tonight that perfection does not move the heart of God. It never has, it never will. We will not ever measure measure up to the standard of perfection that Jesus was. But the good news is we don't have to because Jesus came. That's the whole point of the gospel. But maybe you guys didn't grow up in the church. So maybe all that religious stuff, you're like, yeah, I don't really know about that. Or maybe some of you are like, actually, that's why I've had problems with the church my whole life. And you actually have church hurt or you have kind of angst against the church because it has turned into religious duty instead of a place of love. And so for that side of the pendulum, if religion's over here, we're going to swing to the other side, to this secular fleshing out, secular wing of this moral performance narrative. And in a secular context, individualism actually becomes the most important thing. And so with the trend of America becoming more post-Christian, our view of authority has actually begun to shift in culture. Christian culture says that God is our ultimate authority and therefore the Bible is an authority and the church has authority. But God is the ultimate say. Whereas secular culture has begun to say, actually, I don't want God to be my authority. I don't want a book to be my authority. I actually want to be my own authority. And so individualism has begun to be on the rise. And so within this narrative, we can tend to actually dislike authority. And we can feel like having a standard of absolute truth is very limiting. We deconstruct what we don't like or agree with. Success still defines our worth, and a max out Google Calendar is actually a sign of being successful. It's like, as long as I stay busy, as long as I have lots of things that I need to do, that means that I'm important. We dislike any type of social superiority and are actually very inclusive. This is a swing from the religious side of things. But in order to do this, we embrace our cultural mantras of love and tolerance and. Everybody has their own truth, and you just gotta love them through it. And while that can work, sometimes that means that we condone things that we actually don't agree with, but we just fall on the side of love, and love people anyways. And the problem with both of these types of thinking is that it puts our salvation, it puts our identity, our worth, our value, all on what we do. And I personally can only keep myself in check for so long and my behavior in check for so long. And then I fall into cycles of do more, do more, do more. And I do more. And then I'm still left needing to do more. The to-do list never ends. The desire to be better, to be more successful, never ends. And God, the whole time, is standing there like, hey, I never asked you to do any of that in the first place. Just like perfection doesn't move the heart of God, busyness and doing more for God also doesn't move his heart at all. In case we need some perspective on this, he created the universe. He does not need us. He's not impressed with us doing a lot and being busy. And so either way, this moral narrative that our culture has begun to buy into leaves us feeling very hopeless and very discouraged. But it also might help us to begin to see that we're missing it. What are we missing? We're missing grace. We're missing a deep understanding of grace and how it affects our day-to-day life. Because the reality is that God is actually moved, his heart is moved when his people come and say, I need you, God, I need you. I can't and I need you and I know you're the only one who can help me in this. So the belief that what we do defines who we are or that we need to prove something to God or to people are actually lies straight from the pit of hell. Those are not things that God ever intended for us to live from. And I think a lot of us on paper probably know this. We're like, yeah, like Jesus came, it's a free gift of salvation, awesome. But somewhere along the way, we've begun to subtly begin to make this shift into the lies that our religious and secular culture have begun to weave. I know I certainly have. And so if you've been in church for any length of time, you guys know the story. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins, and by doing so, he paid the price for our sins, and now we get to spend eternity with him in heaven. We're like, yay, that's the best news ever. And it is the best news ever. Don't get me wrong. It's super awesome news. But we sort of, like, miss this part of the story where we talk about what happens from us accepting salvation until we see Jesus face-to-face in heaven. And we kind of forget this part of like, so what is the relevance of the gospel and grace on an average Thursday? On an average Thursday night, what relevance does it actually have to my life? And I think we've kind of gotten focused on like a one moment of salvation and we've forgotten that actually this is the type of thing that influences our day to day. Like actually there is grace for today that maybe we haven't tapped into that God is waiting to extend to us. And this is where I believe there's actually a third narrative. And this is a narrative that Jesus himself has written. It's existed way longer than the performance narrative. And it's one that's actually full of hope. It's full of life. And it's good news. And it's the grace narrative. Because Jesus has written a grace narrative that has changed our eternity. But we don't actually have to wait until eternity to get to experience it. It affects our eternity, but it actually can completely transform our present, our day-to-day, every day on earth can be transformed by the grace narrative. And the grace narrative is this. I have significance because of Jesus. I am a sinner saved by grace and not by anything I've done. I am no better, I'm no worse than anyone else. I'm not superior to anyone because I need grace just as much as the next person. I'm not worse than anyone because God loves me uniquely and individually. Grace, therefore, has nothing to do with performance and it has everything to do with Jesus. It actually has very little to do with us at all and has everything to do with Jesus. Ephesians 2 4 through 9 says it this way But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, not by works, so that no one can boast. For it is by grace that we have been saved. This is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God. It really doesn't get much clearer than that. The lie of our culture tells us the exact opposite of this, but scripture is completely clear. That our salvation, our standing before God, literally has nothing to do with us it's not something we can earn it's not something we can work for and in fact when we try to earn and work for those things we miss it we actually begin to turn away from grace away from the grace that God is extending to us and when we learn how to receive grace we actually can learn how to change and become more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit coming and moving in grace in us Because again, we're powerless to change ourselves. I can like sit there and like close my eyes and really hope that I might just change my heart or my mindset, but the reality is I can't. Like it doesn't matter how long I sit there, it's not gonna happen. But Jesus coming in grace and Jesus coming in power changes everything, every time. Something always happens when Jesus shows up. And so Jesus was high challenge and he asked people to do really hard and sometimes seemingly impossible things. And he set a really high bar with morality and truth, but he met people in grace. In the New Testament, Jesus even ups the ante on morality, saying this in Matthew 5, 27 through 28. It says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who gazes at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And I think we can read this verse and we're like, oh, shoot. Who can be righteous? Who can not sin? Like if even our thoughts can count against us, then like we're screwed. But that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here. Because in the same breath, he raises the bar of morality so high that no one, repeat, no one can actually live it out. But then in the same breath, Jesus comes and he extends to us a low net of grace. And he reminds us that in our strength, we cannot But by the strength of the Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he can. Jesus always meets us with a ton of grace. We see this principle played out in John 8, in the story of the woman caught in adultery who's brought to Jesus. And in this story, Jesus is just having a random day and doing what he does. And the Pharisees go and they grab this woman in the act of adultery. And they come and they throw her at Jesus' feet. And they're kind of like, What you gonna do, Jesus? How you gonna deal with this one? And again, with that religious superior mindset of like, we've already condemned her, so now let's see Jesus condemn her as well. And in case you guys didn't know, Jesus is awesome, because Jesus didn't. Jesus actually turns away, and he begins to write in the sand on the ground. And we actually don't know what he was writing. Maybe he was just drawing a picture in the sand. I don't know. But it's thought that he turned away into the sand so that he wasn't shaming this woman. She was caught in the act of adultery, and they had brought her there to shame her, to laugh at her, to condemn her publicly. And so Jesus is there, drawing in the sand, and he's like, okay, whichever of you have no sin, throw the first stone at her. Like, whichever of you guys are perfect, go ahead and stand there and condemn her. Go for it. And the crowd's standing there, and it gets really awkward because they all are very keenly aware of the fact that they're not perfect. They're spending their entire lives pursuing perfection, and they realize how unattainable it is. And slowly the Pharisees leave, one at a time. And soon enough it's just Jesus and the woman standing there, and Jesus is like, has no one condemned you? She's like, no, no one stoned me, I'm still here. And Jesus is like, neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more, but go. And guys, I think this is such a powerful example of the grace of the Lord. Because he comes and he doesn't shame us. He never shames us. He never condemns us. But when he brings grace, he also brings an opportunity to take action and to change. He didn't just tell the woman like, yeah, you're good. Have a great day. He was like, no, like go and leave this life of sin. Like this is your moment. This is your moment to actually receive grace and do something with it. And guys, I think sometimes we can get caught with like grace in the clouds. We're like, yeah, there's grace and salvation. But there's this action point that we don't understand. We're like, how do we actually access grace? How do we actually begin to see it flushed out in our lives? And I think this is one of the ways we do it. We go and we turn. Grace is an opportunity to change. And while we can't change ourselves, when God gives us an opportunity to change, we've got to take it. We've got to say yes Anything, Jesus, anything you say, I will turn, I will change. I want to walk in freedom. Freedom is costly, and it requires us to participate. But it doesn't mean it's impossible. Especially with Jesus, it is so possible to walk in more and more freedom and grace. And that's the beauty about grace, guys, is that once we tap into grace, things like freedom and mercy and love and truth, it all stems out from there. Grace is our entry point into the deep things of the Spirit and the deep things of God. Grace is love matched with truth. It's being offered an opportunity to take action, to walk away from sin and deeper into the freedom that Christ gives us. And we see this time and time and time again in Scripture. We see it in the life of Daniel and Joseph and Jonah and Paul and Peter and Noah and the list goes on and on and on of these cycles of grace that God has continuously offered to mankind throughout the duration of the world. Because extending grace is just what he does. That story of the woman is so profound and so significant, but guys, we've all had those moments with Jesus. And we've probably had multiple moments like that. We may not have been aware of it at the time, but that is the same heart posture that God has towards all of us, that in our lowest moment, he was saying, "Hey." I'm here, I'm offering a way out, I'm offering a way forward for each one of you. I really love how John Mark Comer defines grace. If you don't know who he is, he's a pastor in Seattle. He's written The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry and a lot of other really good books, has an awesome podcast. He's super cool. 10 out of 10 recommend, but he defines grace this way. He says, it is written, by grace you have been saved. The word grace is charis in the Greek which can be translated as gift. All of life is grace, all of life is a gift. Humans have no rights, everything is a gift. Food, shelter, the clothes on our backs, the oxygen in our lungs, it's all grace. The entire planet, the sky above us, the ground beneath our feet, it's all on loan from our creator God. We live under his roof, we eat his food and drink his water. We are his guests and we are blessed. And then Dallas Willard, who's actually a mentor of John Mark Comer, says it this way. He says, grace is not opposed to effort, but it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, doesn't just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. And I love the combination of these two quotes together because I think it begins to show us a really deep truth about what grace is. It shows us that grace is a gift but that it's a gift that we're invited to translate into action. And so there's a piece of receiving grace, but not just receiving it to hold, to then go do something with it. And so this means that, guys, we have a role to play when it comes to seeing grace move in our lives. Salvation's a free gift, but sanctification, the process of becoming like Jesus, the process of actually living your God-given identity, it's costly. (laughs) And, guys, sometimes our culture is like, um, Life with Jesus should be easy. Like, you should just have peace all the time. You should be loving. You should be kind. You should never be angry. Um, I don't know where that is in the Bible, by the way. I don't know where that came from. That's also a cultural thing that's not true. Life with Jesus is hard. But, guys, it's the only way to live. Because salvation is just the beginning of a journey of stepping deeper and deeper into grace. Grace. And guys, we can get saved and we can do nothing until we see Jesus' face or we can get saved and say, I want more. I want more of your grace. I want more of your presence. I want to encounter you deeper and deeper each day, Jesus. And so I want to begin to kind of talk about some practicals. Do I have any practical people in the audience? A few of you? Cool. Because sometimes I think we can talk about things and we're like, that's so awesome and I feel so envisioned. And then I go home and I'm like, And now what do I do? I don't know. And so we just forget. And we're like, yeah, I don't know what the preacher talked about last week. I don't remember because it didn't really like sink in and change my life. And so my help with these practicals is that actually that these would be things that you guys can take into this next week and say, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. Um, And I'm going to go through four key ways that we can actively partner with God's grace in our lives. Now, these aren't the only four that exist. These are just the four that I felt like God said to talk about tonight. And so if there's other ways that you feel like you receive grace from Jesus or are pursuing grace, that's awesome. Just add these ones to your list. The first one is this, the practice of practicing thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is when we take intentional time and we say thank you to the Lord. We thank him for what he's done. We thank him for what he's doing. And we thank him for things that he hasn't done yet past, present, future, we're thankful. And Thanksgiving, honestly, is more about leading our hearts than it is about the words that we say. I can't tell you how many times, guys, I'll be like, thank you, God, for this cup of coffee. It's like every single day, because that's the first thing I do when I get up in the morning. And But it, it moves my heart to begin the process of saying, oh, God, thank you that I woke up this morning and that you love me. And it, it's an entry point into the deeper things that I'm actually more grateful for. When we're thankful, We're not just thanking God for things that he's given us. We're thanking him for the grace that he's extended to us. Um, Just like that John Mark Comer quote, it's like the air that we breathe, the grass that we touch, the house that we live in, all those things are signs of God's grace for us. And so when we begin to engage in thanksgiving, we're actually beginning to see grace at work in our lives. We're beginning to be grateful for it. One of my favorite examples of grace actually comes from the book of Jonah, specifically chapter two. Um, If you guys aren't familiar with the story of Jonah, he is a prophet. That Jesus comes to him and he's like, Jonah, get up. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell them that if they don't repent, that their city is going to be destroyed. But I'm sending you, in his grace, God sent Jonah to go warn them ahead of time so that they had time to think about it and to repent and come back to the Lord. Now here's the thing. Jonah was an Israelite. Nineveh was their hated enemy. Nineveh was known for being broken and immoral, for being actually especially mean and cruel. They had a lot of money. They had like a huge military and everybody did not like them. And so Jonah's like, yeah, thanks God. Thanks for like offering that to me, but I'm not going to do that. And so Jonah hops on a boat and he actually sails in the exact opposite direction of where Nineveh is And a storm comes, God sends the storm. Basically, long story short, Noah, Jonah gets kicked off the ship. They throw him into the ocean, because that's basically what they feel like God tells them to do. It's a crazy story, you should read it in depth at some point. And God, in his great mercy and his grace, sends this big fish to swallow Jonah up. And so here we have Jonah chapter two from inside the belly. a whale or a big fish or whatever the heck it was so we'll pick up in verse six Jonah says to the roots of the mountains I sank down the earth beneath me barred me in forever but you Lord my God brought my life up from the pit when my life was ebbing away I remembered you Lord and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good, and I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And guys, I think this is really profound. Because imagine, close your eyes for just a second, and imagine that you're in the ocean in the belly of a big fish. It's dark. It probably smells horrible. You're probably scared for your life. You almost drowned, and here you are sitting, just waiting. Y'all can open your eyes. I don't know about y'all, but my heart response wouldn't be like, God, thank you for the gift of salvation. And thank you that you're awesome. I would be like, God, get me out of this fish. Like, please spit me out. But Jonah here taps into something really profound. He begins to thank God for what he's done. And he begins to focus on, on his history with the Lord and his history of grace with the Lord to build his faith in that moment for what God could do. God knew his need, God knew he was in a fish, God was very aware, God is the one who put him in the fish. God saved his life by putting him in the fish. But Jonah responded in that moment moment with Thanksgiving. And so for us, I think Thanksgiving is way undervalued and underrated. It is a very practical way to lead your heart. If you're feeling anxious, have Thanksgiving for God has come and been your protector and your defender. If you're feeling ungrateful, if you're feeling lack, like actual lack where you're like, I don't have enough money to pay my bills. I don't have enough for this. I don't have enough for this. Thank God for where he has showed up in the past and lead your heart to remind yourself of what God has done in his grace. Thanksgiving is profoundly more powerful than I think we realize. Having the ability to tend and steward your own heart is way undervalued, but it is so important, you guys. Secondly, the second way that we partner with grace is through the practice of repentance. And repentance, sometimes we're like, oh, I don't love that word. But Romans 2, 4 tells us that it's God's kindness, actually, that leads us to repentance. And while some of us may feel like repentance, you're like, you want me to talk about all the things that I feel bad about? Like, does God want to come shame me? God doesn't want to come shame you. God wants to come set you free. And repentance isn't sitting there being like, I'm bad. Let me just wallow in self-pity and how horrible of a person I am. Repentance is owning up to what we've done in the places where we have stepped out of the grace of God. But repentance is actively saying, and God, I need you. And I need you to come. Repentance is an active invitation for the grace of God to come and actually change our hearts. Again, we see this in the book of Jonah. But this time we're gonna turn to chapter three. And here, Jonah has been spit out of the belly of the fish. He's back on dry land, dry land, oh my gosh. Um, And God comes to him a second time and he's like, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to warn them that they need to repent. And just a little note on that, God also isn't like, hey, Jonah, remember the first thing I said to you like a week ago that you disobeyed? God just repeats the call. He just immediately starts back with Jonah where he already was. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't drag his face in it. He isn't like, Jonah, you just wasted a week. That was a lot of wasted effort and energy. He just comes right back to what he had initially asked him to do. And so Jonah travels. His traveling was even further this time. He had, I think it's almost like 500 miles to think about his obedience to the Lord. That's a lot of miles in that day and age. But he gets to the city. And he begins to walk through it. And so we'll pick up in verse 4. It says Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And sackcloth was like an outward symbol of what was going on internally, it was a sign of mourning and repentance. God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. clue to verse 10, guys, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. We've talked tonight about how perfection doesn't move the heart of God, how busyness doesn't move the heart of God, how us doing for God isn't really impressive. But a heart posture of repentance moves the heart of God. And that's powerful, guys. What's interesting is that the thing that Jonah says when he gets there is 40 more days. 40 more days. Indicating that God was giving them time and space to receive his grace and to change their hearts. And so God is always extending a hand to us of like, just repent. Just come to me. This is the way that you come near to me. He's not looking for us to come and prove our worth to him, but he is inviting us to come and position ourselves before him. And repentance is just a good life practice to be in. Like, it's not one that you need to just save for, like, the really big mess-ups, although that is important. But the thing with repentance is that the more that you have a lifestyle of repentance where you're, you're broken by your own sin, you begin to have this habit of, like, oh my gosh, but Jesus, I need you more. But Jesus, I need you more. And you Actually, it's funny, you'll start to repent for things that you used to not think were a big deal, like a word that you used to say that you didn't feel bad about, or a song that you used to listen to that now you feel convicted by. But as we repent, God just begins to magnify and turn up the sensitivity of our souls to our need for him and to his presence. And so God is a holy, holy God, and in him there can be no sin, no evil. And so as he begins to change our hearts and make us more like him, our sensitivity to those things increases too. We begin to operate in a deeper level of grace. The third way that we come under the grace of God is another word that a lot of us don't really like. And it's the word of submitting. A little bit nicer of a word might be surrendering, but I specifically felt like God said submit. And what I mean by this is, Jesus exemplifies this um, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is preparing to go and die on the cross, to be brutally tortured, to be physically beaten, um, to be emotionally just completely ripped apart. And what he says, he says, God, not my will, but yours be done. And I really do feel like this is the heart posture of submission. It's saying, I don't like it. I don't want it. But God, is not actually about me. It's about you, and it's about your glory and about your will. And the thing is, when we submit to God, it requires us to let go of control, to let go of performance, to let go of image. It causes us anything we're holding like this, we just have to let it go, and we have to give it to him. And I think this one can be a little bit hard for a lot of us because we actually see the discipline of the Lord as a bad thing. And I think a lot of us... Our view of God is largely shaped by our view of our earthly parents and our experience with them. That's just the way that it works. And so a lot of us as children, whether it was by a parent or a teacher or a coach or a boss, we have been punished when we've done things wrong. And a lot of times that place of punishment and correction actually comes out of a place of anger. And so when we hear the word discipline, we're like, oh, I don't like that. I don't want anything to do with it. But here's the thing, guys. God doesn't punish us, and God never comes at us in anger. He's the perfect parent. He comes to us with loving discipline and correction. And the thing is that discipline actually is just a means of us being able to get back on track. It's the choosing grace and taking action to actually be made more like Jesus. And a way that I think about it is when I was a kid, when my parents would discipline me, they would say something like this. It was like, these are your consequences for what you did. And so, like one time, I thought it was a great idea to cut my own hair and then immediately went to my mom and I was like, look what I did and got in huge trouble. And I was like, okay, these are the consequences for what you just did. And do you guys know what most little kids do when they get punished or have consequences? They scream, they fight, they make a scene they do it in grocery stores, at restaurants, in the car, at home. They just scream. They just are sort of like, ah, don't correct me. I don't want anything to do with it. And so my parents' response to that as a kid was to say, hey, we love you. And so these are the consequences for what you did. And that's not going to change because we're helping you grow and become the person God made you to be. And here's the thing, you can't just go cut your hair at any time when you're an adult, like you're gonna get laughed at if you cut your bangs like that, and so we're trying to help you, so these are your consequences for that. And they said, but here's the thing, if you choose to fight us, if you choose to make a scene and scream and fight and push back against this, we're actually gonna have to raise the consequences to come in line with what your behavior is, is needing, because you're escalating it. And they would use this word of submission of like, if you'll just submit just submit. Like, just come and submit. We love you, and we want what's best for you, and that's our heart in this. And I remember that so clearly as a child of like, oh, well, like, duh, I don't want more consequences. Okay, I'll just chill out. Like, it's fine. And a lot of times when I would do that, actually the punishment or the consequences would get lifted more, and it actually would be not a big deal. And I say that not because you guys need parenting advice, although maybe you do, I don't know. Um, You can store that one away. But I think when we come to God, we're like, you know what, I already messed up, so screw it. I'm just gonna do whatever I want. I already sinned. I might as well dig myself deeper into a hole. And God's like, no, no. Like, there's still consequences for what you did. But like, stop and submit and come to me and let me help you. Don't dig yourself deeper into a hole. Just stop. Um, Come under my will. Let my will and not your will be done. The fourth way that we partner with grace is through dependence. And when I think of dependence in opposition to living a lifestyle where we're independent and self-reliant, I think of the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, which basically Jesus comes to town. Mary and Martha are sisters. They also have a brother named Lazarus. And they're some of Jesus' best friends. And so Jesus just kind of pops up out of nowhere, shows up at their house one day. And Martha, being the good host that she is, like, freaks out. She starts cleaning the house. She starts making food. She starts pulling out chairs, making sure everybody's comfortable. And she, like, goes into this busyness mode just automatically. And meanwhile, her sister Mary is just locked in to Jesus. She's just sitting at his feet from the second that he gets there, dependent knowing the source of her need and nothing could take her away from Jesus and, and Martha walks up to Jesus and she's like um excuse me like do you see my sister you should tell her to get up and start helping me with all this stuff and Jesus very lovingly rebukes Martha and he's like Martha you're worried about stuff that doesn't matter he's like Mary knows what matters and she's put herself exactly where she needs to be And so in our lives, guys, we need to learn what it looks like to live dependent upon Jesus. We live in a culture that is very independent. It's very individualistic, and it's very like, I have to do this for myself, and I have to look out for myself, and I have to make sure that my future is going somewhere, and that I'm successful, and that I measure up. And again, Jesus is just not impressed with any of that. Jesus is like, no, learn how to be dependent upon me. Learn how to come to the source. I like to think about it as like living a life leaned forward, where you're like rather than stepping away from Jesus, you're living with the expectation that He's going to catch you. You're so dependent that you're just like, Jesus, I need you. Let me take a step, <laughs> believing that You're catching me. Let me take another step, believing that You're going to catch me. And even like I talked about earlier, me falling asleep trying to write a sermon, like the Lord was like, that's kind of what dependence is. Like I still had to write the sermon but I had to learn how to be dependent to Jesus in that. And whether it looks like taking a nap or whether it looks like just spending time with God, I think there is an increase in our dependence with the Lord that Jesus is inviting us into. And what I want you guys to notice with all four of these practices of thanksgiving, repentance, submitting, and dependence is that these are all heart postures that are actually paired with action. The ways that we can make ourselves more aware of the grace that God is extending to us, and we can actually make even more room for him to bring more grace than we've ever experienced before. And so guys, we want this room right here to be a grace-filled room. And the way it ends up being a grace-filled room and place is by us being a grace-filled people. And it's possible for us to be a grace-filled people. We wanna be people who focus on who Jesus actually is and what he actually said, rather than the narrative of our culture. Because here's the thing, our culture gets it wrong. But the good news is we have scripture, we have the Bible, and it's a document of all the ways that Jesus got it right. It's truth, we can trust it, we can lean on it. We want to reframe our view of ourselves and other people from the lens of grace. And we want to lay perfectionism and works-based religion aside and receive again the gift of salvation. John Mark Pantana is a singer. Actually, I think he's like a plumber or something in real life. But he sings on the side. It's really awesome. But he sings a lot on the topic of grace. And one of the things that he says is like, the gospel is simply Grace. And so grace isn't about what we do or what we don't do. It's not about being good enough or holy enough, thankful enough, perfect. It's all about Jesus. And guys, if you take anything away from tonight, it's that. It's not about us. Our focus gets way too caught up on ourselves, and it needs to be on Jesus. And so tonight, as we move into a time of response, just feel like God is, is wanting to extend grace to each one of you tonight. And I feel like there's a place of, think through the four ways that we talked about receiving grace and see if that's a place for you to respond right now in this moment, to just take one of those things and to do it. If you need to repent, find someone, repent. If you just need to be thankful, pull out a journal or a note on your phone and just begin to practice being thankful. But I specifically felt an invitation tonight for people to come forward and receive prayer. And every week we have people who stand up here who are like our ministry team every Sunday. It's just part of our culture here at Antioch. Um, And the reason why we do that, and the reason why we invite you guys to come to the front to respond, isn't because there's like some magical amount of Jesus up here in the front. (laughs) That would be really silly. But there is something really magical, something really significant, about when we actually put action behind our response. And I don't know why, but sometimes even just getting out of your chair and sitting on the floor or getting out of your chair and coming to the front, it just, it says something to your soul. It's like, I'm serious about this. I'm putting action behind what God is inviting me into. And so for us tonight, I just felt like there was specifically an invitation to move and come forward for prayer. And the reason for that being that I feel like God also loves to extend grace through the body of Christ, and he loves to do it through prayer, and so when someone prays for you, they are being like Jesus to you, and extending grace to you, and speaking grace over you, and so I just felt like tonight, if you're like, I I am in a moral performance narrative, like I do have a religious mindset, or I do have a secular mindset, and I need to be renewed, like I need God to touch my mind, come get prayer, come get prayer with the expectation that God is going to meet with you tonight, would you guys stand with me? Would you guys just put out your hands? I love that Josiah had us do this earlier in worship, but I want us to do it again. And just in your in your mind, in your heart, I want you to say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to receive the grace that you have for me. And if you're saying that, you're like, actually, that's not what I want some attention to that during response time but if that is what you want I want you to ask Jesus another question Jesus what does it look like for me to receive your grace tonight how do you want me to respond to you tonight Jesus Jesus we love you God thank you for the gift of your grace God I thank you that we don't have to be perfect because you already were God And so, Jesus, I just pray that you would break off perfectionism tonight, God, that you would break off every bit of works-based doing within us. God, that you would break off busyness. God, that you would break off ways that we've withheld your grace from ourselves. And God, we just invite your grace to come and for you to fall on people. God, would you renew our minds? And Jesus, would you speak the grace narrative over us? Would you remind us of the power of the gospel tonight? And would you come and would you move in us? We love you, Jesus. In your name, we pray. Our ministry team can come forward and guys, let's be a people that respond. Let's go for it.